Alright, and we are back to once again explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And joining us today, we have a special guest who works as a deconstruction coach, uh, Angela Harrington. Angela, thank you so much for being on our show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. I'm excited to have you as well. Um, this is a podcast I know you and Kevin have chatted before we've had uh, this episode, before we've gone live here. This is the first time I've had the opportunity to get to meet you, and I'm happy to get to meet you. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Um, our podcast really has centered on and has revolved around Kevin and I discussing the deconstructions that we have gone through in our faith. Mm -hmm. A term that I have taken to use is the detoxification of my faith and letting go of old harmful theologies and patterns of thinking towards something that better exemplifies Jesus, a Christ-centered hermeneutic, a Christ-centered approach to faith. And Kevin and I have talked about that at length here. And whenever he told me that he had found you and the work that you did and the work that you do, I've, I thought that you would be a great fit for our show. Kevin thought you'd be a great fit for our show. So we brought you on to have this conversation about deconstruction and all of the good that can come from it and some of the pain that can be involved with that process as well. But would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, sure. I'm Angela Harrington. Like you said, I'm a faith deconstruction coach. I'm also a host of the Deconstructing Faith Summit, which happens every year in the fall. Uh, I'm also the host of the Deconstructing or the Faith Deconstruction Cafe over on Facebook, which is a, a free Facebook community where we just hang out, kind of like we're doing here, and talk about all things faith and deconstruction and, and toxic religion related. So that's where I kind of live online. Um, I have been in online ministry and coaching, some sort of form of that online work for 11 years. I just had my 11th oh, wow. anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So I'm kind of an OG in the world. Um, <laughs> not, not that I have it all figured out, but um, it's been a, a long and winding road to get here. I am a seminary trained pastor. Um, I oh, also cool. a certified life coach. So I really have this unique um you know, people try to, to, to ask me to describe myself. It, a Venn diagram is the best way to do it. There's a lot of circles floating around. Um, I'm also married. Next, uh, this is our 20th anniversary this year. My husband, Gary, and I are celebrating. Happy anniversary. And thank you. And I've got five kiddos. My oldest two have flown and grown. We have one that just graduated high school. I've got one in high school and one in middle school. So we've got a big range of ages. Um, so life, you know, lots of end, lots of circles in the Venn diagram for, for how to describe my life. Um, people ask me a lot of times, you know, what is a deconstruction coach? How did you get here? And uh, it's not a, it's a great punchline, but it's not actually a joke. I got here by going to seminary. Um, I got into deconstruction <laughs> by going into seminary. And I went to a great school. But it also really challenged me to come face to face with some things that just didn't sit well, um, some contradictions, uh, some things that I, you know, I was I was reading and conversations I was having with God that then weren't playing out the way that I thought God wanted them to play out in the real world. So I did a research project on Gen X women in the church and whether they had access to uh, leadership mentoring and opportunities. And I was talking to some some phenomenal ladies at high levels within a variety of church structures, different dominations, all that kind of stuff. And they were still being left out of conversations and they were still coming up against things that were um, just not healthy. And so mm -hmm. I, I think I'd been deconstructing for a while and that really um, helped me see 
that the problems were actually bad doctrines and gender bias rather than, you know, me as an individual, I just hadn't learned enough or I hadn't yeah. gotten high enough in organizations or I just didn't have enough experience to feel welcome and to feel like an insider. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got here. Well, well, I, let's let's kind of talk about this idea of deconstruction for a minute because it seems like everywhere you go, you hear this word, right? Like yeah. it's it's you know some have even mocked it as a fad that people today just talk about deconstruction, and uh, some seem to really know what they're talking about. Perhaps others not so much. And you'd use the example before we even started recording how. The word deconstruction is almost like music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it really is a word that covers a broad spectrum of ideas. It covers, you know, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And even Lee and I sometimes will use the words conservative and liberal and traditional and progressive. And those words are very subjective and have to be right. defined because they can mean so many different things. And so when we talk about deconstruction, because that word is so popular today, what do you mean by deconstruction? Yeah. So if we go back to the root definition of deconstruction, it's basically a process of, of taking um, knowledge, taking a topic, taking information, taking a concept and taking it apart and breaking it into smaller and smaller pieces to examine. So it's, it's, it's the idea of taking a structure that exists and taking that structure apart. Now it's, it's conceptually, it's not the same as demolition. Um, I think a lot of the critics Mm -hmm. say that deconstruction is actually just like the nuclear option when it comes to your faith. And by going into deconstruction, you're literally walking away from everything that you used to believe, everything you were taught, everything that doctrinally aligns with whatever your environment was. Um, that's a lot of scare tactic happening, right? So yes. for for most people who are deconstructing, um, what we're talking about is sifting and sorting and examining every single belief that we have and no. not necessarily saying, um, you know, these are the, this is the 75% I want to keep. And I just want to get rid of this 25% because I don't want to be disciplined. That's a criticism, right? Like (laughs) I just, I just don't, I don't want the responsibility of what it means to live righteously. So I'm just going to throw out those things. Like that's not deconstruction. You just want to do whatever you want to do. You just want to live your life. However you want to live it. You don't want to be, uh, um, under the rule of God or under his authority. Yeah. Yeah. You don't care about the truth. You're deconstructing the truth just so you can live in your air. Exactly. You're just making excuses <laughs> for your sin, right? Um, which is, I mean, there's a whole another conversation we can have about, about language and how um, belonging in the church is weaponized and how language is weaponized mm-hmm. in a way that's really driven to shame us and mm-hmm. keep us small. Um, but kind of, kind of back to this idea of deconstruction, we're, we're literally examining our beliefs, choosing what's worth keeping and what isn't. And the scariest part about that is we may get to the bottom of that bucket of beliefs and realize it's all trash. We may not do anything. And I think that, you know, from working privately with people and having dozens and dozens and dozens of private conversations with people who are deconstructing, they're afraid of two things. They're afraid of getting to the bottom of the bucket and nothing is worth keeping. And they're afraid of losing loved ones and community. And so it just, it's a really isolating space. So when we go into deconstruction, having a coach, having therapy, having all these supportive systems, 
is just about holding space for us so that we can do the work ourselves. So we can search, we can understand, we can work through our trauma um, rather than what some of the critics say of, of deconstructing is just following a different guru. It's just yeah, yeah. belief system, right? Like that's not, a, that's not actually deconstruction. We may be changing our beliefs, but that's not the same as deconstruction because deconstruction is something that happens within me Mm-hmm. regardless of the external pressures. Well, and what you're saying about deconstruction and, and having the beliefs in about I love how you put that. That's so beautiful and it's so accurate. I would have loved to have had or to have been aware of your presence or someone like you about six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. That would have been hugely beneficial because those fears that you just described are so real for so many people. I know for me, I grew up in a, in a different faith and eventually, or a different denominational system and eventually became a member of the churches of Christ and bought into that was all in on that until things began to unravel for me. And fortunately I was able to reach out to Kevin and reconnect with him. He had been going through that process for a period of time as himself, but those two fears that you described that perfectly describes the concerns that I had whenever I began that journey of detoxification. And from the conversations I've had, probably not with nearly as many people as you have, probably a fraction of the number of people that you've worked with, it's the same thing. It's so true. People are so terrified that they have bought into a system that has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And it's, it's almost like a, almost it's akin to almost a sunk cost fallacy. I have spent so much time in this system and I've spent so much time championing this system and preaching about this system and teaching about this system to think that it's worthless, to think that it has, it's, it's no good whatsoever. And then that fear of losing community, it's, it's a very, very scary prospect for a lot of people. Well, and on top of that, it gets back, Angela, to what you were saying. Aside from what you're dealing with internally when you're questioning, you're you're having all of the outside pressure and people telling you, well, if this is the road you go down, you're going to lose everything. You're going to no longer have your community. You're no longer going to have your friends. You're going to lose your family. In fact, when a friend of mine, <clears throat> he was changing. And just this was at the very beginning stages. He was just questioning a few things. And mm-hmm. one of the leaders at his church told him, this is this is the worst decision if you continue to go down this path that you're ever going to make. He said, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything if you start doing this. And and, mm-hmm. and another preacher used the illustration of an onion. You know, he said, well, you're just going to continue to peel it back and peel it back until there's nothing left. Or you're going to take this thread and you're going to keep pulling on it until you've unraveled everything. And the thing, the, the truth of the matter is, most of the time, there's still going to be elements left that you're going to be able to work with. But in those in those other times when the, when you really have unraveled everything, it is what it is. I mean, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it just because it may end up unraveling absolutely everything you've ever believed in mm-hmm. does not mean that that's not the right thing. <laughs> right. And so it operates so much of this. Op- we actually recently just did an episode about fear and manipulation and coercion and how all of this plays into that. But getting back to this idea and definition of deconstruction, 
this isn't anything new either. I mean, people have been doing this since the beginning of time. And our mutual friend, Tiffany Yecky Brooks, talks about this uh, in her book. And I know we discussed this a little bit with her, that when you look at the Bible, those who, who really want to be Bible believers, quote unquote, we see this concept, as you've defined it, of deconstruction all throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments. I mean, we see it from the prophets. We see it with Jesus himself, John the Baptist. We see it with Paul and the apostles. We've seen it all throughout the, the history of the church for the past 2,000 years. And so for whatever reason, deconstruction has a negative connotation when in reality it's not necessarily negative or positive it's just as you described it breaking everything into parts and being able to examine it that's all it is it's i think people are afraid because so much of the religion that they have believed in um quite frankly is garbage and people are walking away from it and so because of that it has kind of, you know, more of your fundamentalists have viewed that as, oh, this is all a, a negative thing. But in reality, a lot of positive things are happening because we are deconstructing. Absolutely. And and if you if you can imagine just for a second a bullseye, okay, and and imagine that this is an illustration of privilege. And towards the center are the people who are most privileged in this American white supremacy built upon slavery country, okay? Um, if the, fur, the closer you are to the center of that bullseye, uh, the less it makes sense to deconstruct because as you move towards the marginalized mm-hmm. people who we have pushed outside the center of the bullseye, um, it's the pressure there is the system isn't working for me as a marginalized individual. In the center of the bullseye, the system was actually designed to support you, yeah. right? So, so if you're white, you're educated, you're male, um, you have some level of, of education in your family, probably have been um, owned your own home, those types of things where, where you have some generational affluence. It doesn't mean you're wealthy, but you have things that have been passed on from generation to generation that, that it just embrace that, that position in the center of the bullseye. Why would you deconstruct? Why would you give that up? And so the the closer to you are you are to the center of that bullseye, the more likely you are to lash out at deconstruction and mm. say it's threatening everything. I mean, we've we can get political here for a second, but we've heard this over the last decade about how certain movements that are trying to create equitable societies are threatening everything good about the US that are are threatening particular ways of life. Well, those are highly privileged ways of life that are actually harmful to others. Mm -hmm. So deconstruction starts with, usually starts with something that feels oppressive to us. So me as a woman, I work with a lot of women and I work with a lot of white women and we feel the gender bias against us. And that's like where a lot of it starts to unravel. And it's like, well, wait a second, how does this doctrinally align with who I know God to be, right? And that's that string we start pulling. Because yeah. we just intuitively know it's just not right. Well, well, that's that's such a good point because you don't, you know, and I and I've I've noticed this too. Just being a former minister is you typically don't question a belief system or a system as long as it's benefiting you. Oh yeah, and yeah. you know, it, it, and that's that's one of the reasons why I'm not a fan of employed ministry. Because, uh, you know, you're not going to question your beliefs if that would mean 
uh, it would it would change everything. Um, it would it would end up from at least a temporary perspective, you know, harming you or you know losing your job or you know a lot of the comforts you have would be taken away. And so, when you are in a system in which you're benefiting from, or those around you are benefiting from, you're probably not you don't have much of a reason to question it. It's not until you start to feel those effects yourself or you see other people you love and care about feeling those effects that you begin to start questioning things. Yeah, that's a really interesting. Uh, so by employed ministry, you mean clergy being paid? Is that? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 So even that, I'm going to challenge you just a little bit. Even that is a position of privilege. Oh, because no doubt. As, yeah, yeah. You know, as, a, as a white male, you're you tend to be more fairly compensated for your roles than anyone else. So for women, we are typically not compensated for our roles. Think of pastor's wives mm -hmm. who work full-time jobs and never get paid a penny, right? So for deconstruction purposes, what may be deconstructing for you around that topic wouldn't necessarily be deconstructing for me around that topic because we're moving towards an equitable zone that's sort of in the middle. So that's actually a great example of the nuances and the gray areas that make deconstruction such a personal thing. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, this is something that we had mentioned on an episode we did not too long ago. I, I can't help but hear your example of the bullseye and think about how validation plays a role in this, because it seems from my experience, a lot of the the pushback against deconstruction, the people that are uncomfortable with it because they are in such a privileged position within the center of that bullseye. I think within the churches of Christ, those um, brethren that are uh, the most engaged with sound doctrine, so to speak, mm -hmm. they hold the most privileged position, at least within the one cut branch of the churches of Christ. That's the case. And whenever someone begins to push against those doctrinal issues, the threat seems to, to be an invalidation of the entire construct that gives them that privileged position within right. the center of that bullseye to begin with. Is, is that a fair way to put it? Do you feel in your experience that validation and invalidation plays a role in that? Or am I thinking about this too simplistically or yeah, I, am I way off base? No, you're totally, I can't speak specifically to the church of Christ because um, I'm not embedded in that system. So this is kind of a general answer as a whole. I think that validation plays into it. Um, but I think validation is a sign that you have power and you have yeah. authority in a community. So, um, you know, again, with the with the nuances within that bullseye, you may have people who hold positions of power, but just feel like it's normal because that's yeah. the power they've always experienced. Right. That's why it's so hard to see our own privilege and our own bias, because it's just normal for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so a lot of times when we're challenging a system, the people who are in positions of power and positions of authority take it very personally. Mm -hmm. It becomes a personal attack, which is why rock stars declare war on deconstructors and why like all this venom is coming at us because we are threatening to upend the system that they have defined themselves by. And what's the fastest way to, uh, to disempower a leader? Take all of their followers away. So yeah. if you're in a church or in a denomination and all of a the sudden their people are, are leaving 
your power diminishes because mm-hmm. in an imbalanced power structure, the leaders are, are literally feeding off of the power of everybody that's in their community. So a, one leader by themselves with nobody following them, nobody supporting them, all they have is their own power. So that's why the validation and and the connections and all of those things, I tie those back to power. because that's it's really- kind of a byproduct of the power. Yeah, it's just a nuanced way that it shows. Yeah, it manifests differently in every conversation, um, in in every relationship that we have. But um, yeah, yeah, that that it's it's all about protecting the fight against deconstruction is all about protecting this power structure that works really well for some people at the center of the bullseye. And that to me is whenever you put it that way. I've, I've kind of been wrestling and wrestling is really even too strong of a term. I've just, I've been thinking about that idea a lot and what role validation and invalidation plays with the vitriol and the venom as as you put it, that goes up against those that deconstruct within a particular system. And I mean, I have personally been on the receiving end of some of that venom. I've been on the receiving end of some of that vitriol and whenever you're in the process of deconstruction, you're really in a very vulnerable place because a lot of people without the privilege of having someone to help them through it, they're, they're, they're sort of adrift. They really don't have much direction. They don't know if you would have asked me three years ago, four years ago, well, what do you believe about X, Y, or Z? My answer would be, I don't know. I have no idea. And whenever you're in that vulnerable position, you're much more vulnerable to attack. And it's, it's a really easy way to try to shut down conversation, to try to, Mm -hmm. to just stop the process of eroding that power that exists within the center of that bullseye. Whenever you smell blood in the water, you attack, you pounce, you go for it. And I've experienced that myself, but I, I think there, there are stages of this because at this point now, the venom and the vitriol does not bother me one iota. It frustrates me whenever I see it levied against someone else that may be in a different place than what I am. But personally, it doesn't really have an effect on me anymore. So what are the stages of deconstruction that a lot of people go through? Like, how does that start? What what does that process look like in general? Or am I asking a question that's impossible to answer? to answer here. So you have the benefit because we're recording this on video. You have the benefit of seeing my face. This is going to drive you bonkers. And to all your listeners, sorry, there, <laughs> there is no 10 step stage program for deconstruction. Okay. Um, having a highly structured stage model is actually against, it goes completely against the idea of deconstruction itself. Right. Yeah. Um, well, it so- seems obvious when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, because what if you're what if you're like trying to deconstruct a model, right? That you've been told that you're supposed to be using. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's a lot. There's probably a lot of people swearing under their breath at me. That's okay. I can take it. Um, but- well, I knew I knew where you were going when Lee was asking that. I'm like, this is going to be fun because on your website, you know, you're like, there is no step process of deconstruction. Yeah. yeah. So I think that. You know, and I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of a huge fan of, of visual models. Obviously, we talk about a bullseye. We talk about Venn diagrams. Um, when I see people going through deconstruction, there are some seasons that overlap. There are some things um, that people go through that are pretty consistent, but the way that we go through them is radically different. And I will tell you, the further in to your church life the more you were raised in it, the further into leadership you are, 
um, the more complex those seasons are going to be. So people who were raised in, in um, the super conservative church their whole life and are now, you know, in their 40s and are looking at things that they've been taught, their grandparents have been taught, their great grandparents have been taught, like that deconstruction is going to look a little different than, you know, say me who grew up in Christian community, but didn't actually start going into church and being embedded in the church until my adult life. So we're still going to go through grief. We're still going to go through fear. We're still going to go through stages of having to reconcile with our own privilege, but it's going to look really different. Um, the other thing that I think is really important is that the more marginalized you are by the church, it's going to be a little bit easier for you to pick up on some of the things because you've experienced it real life. The closer you are to the center of that bullseye, the more time you may need to spend mm -hmm. in those parts of deconstruction where you haven't reconciled your own privilege yet. So for example, a lot of people come to me in deconstruction because something is pressuring them. You know, go back to the example of women and gender bias. Like we see where, where there's some oppression on us, but very, very rarely in the early stages of deconstruction, have we looked at that bullseye model and say, okay, gender bias is coming towards me. But if I turn and I look outward towards the marginalized, the people who are more marginalized by the church than I am, how am I perpetuating gender bias on them? Hmm. And that's where it's really, really, really tough. Because once you realize that you're perpetuating the same harm on people that you're fighting against, deconstruction becomes a whole, a whole different battle. And you start to recognize that you've internalized these things your whole life. So there's, there's lots of topics that we could talk about. We could say, well, everybody who's deconstructing has to look at racism and has to look at gender bias and has to look at misogyny and xenophobia. Like there's lots of topics we could talk about, but it's really an individualized process mm -hmm. that includes a whole lot of trauma recovery and becoming self-aware. Yeah, and the trauma part is, I think, where I I know that that has been a, a huge part in my process of <clears throat> kind of the realization <clears throat> of how much hurt I caused other people. And, you know, because at, at first you're like, okay, well, I've been wrong on a few things I'm going to change. And then you start looking and you're like, wow. Like I've, I've really done a lot of damage <laughs> and, and you, you, you know, as much as, at least in my mind, you want to try and not dismiss it, but kind of excuse yourself because you were doing things, thinking you were doing the right thing. Um, it doesn't take away from the harm you still did. And that's one of the reasons why Lee and I are so at, are, are so passionate about this podcast and these topics because we want to help people. <laughs> we, we did a lot of damage and now we're hoping to help people. Not, not in a way to necessarily make up for it. Um, because I don't think that's healthy either. <laughs> um, but in a, in a way that we truly just, we now feel this peace and this freedom and this hope and this joy. And I feel like I did so much damage in stripping that away from people or perhaps never even giving people the opportunity to have that because of what I taught. Mm -hmm. And so that really played a, a, a huge factor in my mind, in my mental state of, you know, just struggling with with realizing the damage I caused and being aware of how sincere I was when I did it. But that has helped me to realize that there are so many others out there 
who are sincere people, just like I was, um, but who are causing so much damage, who are they're, they're perpetuating these toxic systems without even realizing it's what they're doing. It doesn't mean that they're horrible people, but they are perpetuating things that are horrible. And I, I've, I've tried to explain this a lot when I talk about the churches of Christ. You know, people, oh, you just you just don't love, you know, you don't like anybody in the church of Christ. I said, no, I said, I've got great friends and there are many churches because the churches of Christ is autonomous. There are many who have broken away from that old system and way of thought. I said, but we have to be willing to call out systems. You know, it's one thing to take personal responsibility and we need to do that, but we also need to call out uh, systemic problems because as long as they they exist, it'll continue to happen. And you know, one thing, just listening to you uh, that I never really thought much about is kind of going back to this idea. You know, you talk about the bullseye and, and the closer you are to it. Um, Lee and I both held very high positions of of authority and power um, mm-hmm. at, at young ages. I was the director of a of a worldwide TV, radio, internet program in my mid twenties, and so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you talk about power upon power upon power with where I was at, and you you really don't you don't even think about those things. Um, but what you do is you see if anyone is threatening your position, you know, that that's when you see people speak out and you're talking about, you know, now we even see a lot of Christian contemporary artists speak out and, you know, all of them, oh, deconstruction's bad. We've got to preserve. We have to defend. We have to protect. And that's that language again that sounds noble on the surface. But what are you defending? What are you protecting? What are you preserving? Is it is it good or is it bad? Is it worth protecting? And and you know, is it some some of the things we're protecting? They don't need to be protected. And I like how you you don't make it just about an issue because yes, we could talk about a plethora of topics, and that's going to be different depending upon who you're talking about. But it goes much deeper than that. It goes to the concept of what we're dealing with because it really doesn't matter at the end of the day the issue or the topic. It's the it's the the foundation and the importance of this deconstruction and and being aware of that. Now, let me ask you this, because some people are going to push back um, because they they have with me. And and I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on this. And they'll say, well, Kevin, yeah, you know, equality is a good thing. And Jesus came, obviously, you know, he's he's all about equality. And Jesus is about being a servant. He's about helping others. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be those in power and those who are not in power. And uh, if it, it, and there will be even those who who claim because I've had these discussions and they'll say, well, those who are not in power, they just simply want power, and those who already have it simply want to keep it. So what's the difference? But at the end of the day, what's the difference between you know those who already have it versus those who want it? Because isn't the desire still the same? What would your response be to that? I think it's really easy to vilify people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I know we're on audio, so I'm using air quotes as for opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum. Um, it's really easy to vilify that. And and even going back to, you know, people who are in leadership and are deconstructing, um, seeing how easy it is to perpetuate harm on others really helps us humanize those who have harmed us. So mm-hmm. so the first thing is we've really got to stop vilifying people who hold different beliefs than us um, and are harming us. Um, We can set healthy boundaries. We can speak out against people, but to to vilify and to say they're monsters or to throw them into some subhuman category, 
I mean, that's the whole reason that wars go on for centuries, because people just keep going back and forth between we're right, you're wrong, you must be monsters, we must be holy. Um, so we first have to kind of check ourselves on that. And the reason we do that is because we're conditioned to by the system. So mm. it's not going to be easy. <laughs> um, the other the other kind of the core question that you're asking is is about power um i avoid the word equality okay um equality is everybody has the same thing but just like we discussed with pay structure a little earlier for you to have um for you to be in a healthier place within the system and me to be a healthier place in the system that doesn't necessarily that we need we need exactly the same when it comes to pay Mm -hmm. um, you know, people of color are just for centuries, especially women of color and trans women of color forever have, have had their value just so minimized, just pennies, pennies, pennies on the dollar. So for us to create a system that helps repair some of the damages that we've been doing, it needs to be an equitable system, which is more of everybody gets what they need to thrive. And so it's not a system, we're not saying, um, you know, this is an anarchy. We're not trying to throw over the power structure and just put another figurehead in place. Um, we're not trying to, to flip the imbalance of power so that it favors the, the groups that are marginalized. What we're saying is we need to balance this out because this is never the way it was supposed to be. It is the way that it has been for a very long time because of power. Um, and because of wealth and because of the pursuit of those things, we can go all the way back and look at like Charlemagne and, and look at the Church of England and look at like, you know, there's like a thousand years of history there where you can see, okay, that person, that was a power grab, that was a power grab, that was a power grab. And to sit here and say, we don't need to relinquish any of the power that we have to balance things out, I think is really naive, naive on the good side, but ignorant on, um, you know, and just choosing, um, choosing to pretend like you don't benefit from those old systems uh, on perhaps the more harmful side. Yeah, that makes sense. I like, I like the equity over equality. And I, I've seen the charts, you know, mm -hmm. that, that show the difference between that. Um, can you go into that a little bit more for our audience of what exactly would be the difference and what yeah. that, what that means, you know, pra practically yeah. speaking? You know, a great, a great way to look at it is to look at the housing market um, over the last hundred years. Um, in World War II, when people came back, uh, we had this plethora of programs that were um, you know, the GI housing bills. And, and the goal was for people who were coming back to, to, get a, to, to get a head start, right, to reward them for their service. And that generation who came back from the war, purchased houses, set up home, like they, there was a tremendous growth in wealth for people who were able to do that. There's a lot of research, there's a lot of numbers and reporting that's come out over the last few decades saying, okay, but 90 some percent, like 99% of that went to white soldiers and, and not to BIPOC people wow. who also served in the exact same trenches. And so for us to, to look at today's housing situation and say, well, everybody has a fair shot. No, they didn't because my grandparents and my great grandparents they owned their own houses. A lot yeah. of my a lot of my friends um, who did not, you know, they don't have the same privilege that I do. A lot of my friends who are women of color, 
their parents didn't even own their own houses, not because of a lack of effort or any of those other things that racists try to pin on people of color, but because our system was designed not to allow them. Our system was designed to benefit my grandparents, not yeah. their grandparents. So trying to balance that out, to make it an equitable system means that we're not just pretending that everybody has the exact start the, the exact same start in life and we're acknowledging that if we go back to um, the enslaved people who were promised financial compensation when they were released from slavery and never got it it has never been an equitable or a fair system for people of color here in the US so we've got to take that into account. It's a whole different math formula when you say, you know, we've never gotten this right as a country than it is to say, oh, yeah, everything's right. We're just in a recession. There's a lot of, um, <laughs> you know, there's just your know, prices are really expensive right now. But if you go out and work hard, you can overcome that. You know, that's that's really this. That's the system that that's out there. And that's what's preached in a lot of our churches and from a lot of our um, politicians. So when we look at the church, you know, we have to say the same thing. White churches have always had more privilege, more political pull, more resources than any other church. Mm -hmm. So do we really have an equitable religion? We don't. doesn't matter what denomination you're in. And we have to be honest about that and seek to correct that in a way that stops pushing people to the margins. Well, and I think that what you're saying, I mean, you're right on the mark. And if you think about the housing market before World War II, before everyone came home and those programs were available, it really was equitable. It was more equitable. Everyone had a greater shot at it, but these programs roll out and it's no longer equitable. Here's a hand up for you people over here, but you find folks over here because your skin's a different color because of this or that or whatever else. You don't get the same um, boost that these folks do. It's a matter of different people being boosted to different degrees. That's yeah. it's it, in the way that that permeates the church. It's, it's wild because yeah. it's, it's subconscious. We don't think about that. I don't think about that. And in this conversation, I think about myself, I think about where, you know, my great grandparents came from and all the hard work they did. I think about my grandparents. I think about my parents. I think about myself and where I am in life and how that generational wealth, and I hesitate to use that term because we're not wealthy, but that generational wealth did play a role in me being able to be who I am and to have what I have now. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I've never thought about that. I've yeah. never even considered that for even a moment. Yeah. And I want to, I want to even push back here. Um, the housing market in the U.S. was not equitable at the turn of the century. It was not equitable in the 1800s. It was not equitable when people were enslaved and not allowed to own property. It was not equitable when we first settled our country, stole from the indigenous people who already lived here, put them out in areas that we thought were less valuable, and then gave that land to whatever settler could get there and produce tax revenue. So if we're going to be really honest, yeah, yeah no, that's we true. Never had an equitable system here. And what you see is that every time you see a jump in generational wealth in the pe for the people who are in the center of the bullseye, the people who are marginalized, their wealth is being stripped away. 
And I, I think that that plays into a question that I wanted to get to okay. since we have you here is one of the things that I have noticed, and it's not just people in regards to the center of the bullseye, but also people, you know, not just the people on the margins, but we also see this, or at least I have in the center as well, is in a lot of cases of deconstruction, bitterness is something that can set in for a lot of folks. And most people are going to deal with bitterness as they go through the process of deconstruction. I know myself, I dealt with a little bit of it. I feel like I've moved past it. I don't really feel like I'm personally bitter anymore, but there are some people whether they're white males or females of color or on the LGBTQ spectrum, whatever the case may be, there are a lot of people that have been more marginalized that have dealt with bitterness and have moved past it. But then there are other people that have deconstructed that have been closer to that bullseye who can't seem to get past their bitterness. It, It seems like bitterness is one of those things that almost everyone who goes through deconstruction is going to deal with at some point, but whether or not one holds on to that bitterness, it seems to, that it doesn't seem to be a respecter of persons in their place on that bullseye. So in your experience in, in working with people that go through this, why is it easier for some people to move past bitterness, but other people tend to hold on to it and have a hard time getting past it? Yeah, I think I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. I think that um, there probably is a correlation between how privileged you are and what it is you're asking, to, uh, what it is you're being asked to give up. Um, yeah. I, I think there's probably a correlation there. I also think that um, I think that there's a a huge variety of where people are at in their self awareness when they come to to deconstruction right? Um, We all have different trauma responses, right? We all have different coping mechanisms. My husband and I talk about this all the time because in some ways we're very, very similar, but when it comes to how we handle stress and how we handle trauma and how we've handled past traumas, we are polar opposites. And um, sometimes it's like a little tornado when we both go to our trauma response <laughs> and we're trying to find each other in the middle so that we can navigate it. And I, you know, I don't say that lately. Trauma is not something I talk about lately. I, we, I've spent years, 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 years in therapy. Actually, at therapy this morning. Um, it's therapy is the lifeline for me in doing this work um, because deconstruction is trauma recovery for the majority of us. So what I would say is depending on your response to trauma, depending on how you've been taught to process hard emotions and doubts and and even like a complete lack of confidence in what you believe, that's what determines uh, a big, it's a big part of what determines how you're going to go through it and how you're going to come out of it. I would also say that where you are on the bullseye Um, gives you permission for certain emotions and certain postures based on your level of privilege. So not to pick on the white guys, but white (laughs) affluent men, you guys have a lot more permission to be angry and resentful than uh, perhaps a, a trans woman of color, right? Think about the stereotype of an angry black woman. Black women are not supposed to be angry, but don't, Black women have a whole lot more to be angry about than white men who are holding power and being asked to give a little bit of it back because it was never theirs, right? So some of it is the privilege that we hold. A lot of it is what we've been taught. 
And I think that the third piece that's probably not very measurable in the equation is just how committed we are to the process of deconstruction. Like, are we deconstructing because we want to get to the other side and we want to hold on to certain beliefs and like it's it's on our vision board and we know what our plans are and it's going to come out a certain way? Or are we actually saying, I don't actually know what's happening here. I I don't know what's going to happen in this process, but I'm committed to finding out because I can't keep going the way that I'm going and be okay. Yeah. Well, it's <clears throat> go ahead, Kevin. No, well, <clears throat> I was going to, for a moment, I was going to step back um, so to earlier when we were talking about how n- no two people start the same place in the race. Yeah. And, and this also ties into what you're talking about right now, because, you know, this is something I never thought about, especially as a kid. I mean, I never thought about it until much later in life because experience and perception is reality, especially as you're growing up. And so, you know, I just figured everyone else had the same experiences I had. They had the same family life I had. You know, they had two parents who who loved them and took care of them. They had wonderful grandparents who spoiled them rotten. You know, like I just assumed because that was my experience, everyone else that I went to school with must have had the same experience that I had. And it wasn't until I started, I didn't really identify what it was, but I noticed that when I was in high school, I started hanging out with, you know, my friends more and noticed, oh, okay, well, so your, your mom and dad are divorced. So you, you only get to see your, your dad on the weekends or you only, oh, wow. I I didn't realize that that's a very different life than the life I live. Um, that must be difficult because I, I don't have to worry about packing my bags every weekend to go see, you know, my, I don't have, I, I, you have a very different experience than I have. And I think for so many of us still today, because America and really Western culture, but America is so individualistic. We just assume that your story is my story. And you'll, and I've even heard people say, you know, well, I am the majority. How, how can anybody claim they are the majority um, when they only know a handful of people? Even those who really get out and know a lot of people can't claim anything for technically the majority unless you're dealing statistically, but it's like everyone wants to think they're the majority, right? Everyone wants to like believe like, well, everyone thinks like me. Everyone must feel like me. Everyone must do what I do because that's what I do. So everyone else must be able to relate to that. And, you know, I grew up in Alabama and I never realized how racist I was. And, you know, now everyone's like, oh, Kevin's woke now. Kevin's woke. And I'm like, look, it's sad that I can't bring up the fact of the experiences that I was able to to see growing up and the things that I was told and taught at church, um, such as, you know, you, you don't need to date someone of a different color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just of a different color. It's white people don't need to stoop to that lower level of dating someone who's black. Um, I've worked with churches where ministers were fired or ministers were never hired or given the opportunity because they were black or married to someone who was black. And I experienced that. And when I share that, instead of someone being curious and, 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 you know, maybe rethinking things, they're like, oh, oh, you're just buying into the woke culture of today. And I said, it's very sad. I can't even tell you 
about what I experienced as a white man <laughs> and the racism I saw. And, and you're, you're not even willing to listen to that because you're so steeped in your own beliefs that you don't even think this stuff exists. So that when someone you do trust tells you it does exist, you're certainly not going to listen to a black person. In fact, anytime a black person talks about racism, there goes the blacks again, just complaining about what they don't have. And yeah. now if you're white, and you're talking about the reality of racism, it's, oh, you're just a woke white person now who's just bought into the media. And it's, no, 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 I don't even care. Everybody knows me. I'm, I could care less about politics. I, I don't have the time to get involved in that. I can barely take care of myself and my own job and my blog. What I care about is what I have finally been able to study, research, and experience. And that's when it, that's, and I think for so many people, the change doesn't happen. Until it is somebody they love, somebody they care about. You know, for me specifically, it was a friend of mine who was married to a woman who's half black and he's white. And he was going to get hired at a church until they, when he came by himself, they had never seen pictures of his family. They had only seen him. Mm -hmm. He came out by himself to try out. Everyone loved him. He came with his family. She's half black. He doesn't get the job because of that reason. Specifically, that is why. I mean, I had the conversation with the leaders. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I realized, wow, this is real. Like this, this does exist. You know, I mean, this is because I had never experienced it. That was nothing to that, at least to that degree, because it had never affected me until then. And that's why I think that empathy is so important. And the more that we villainize, as you pointed out, the more we dehumanize, we are not going to be able to have empathy. And the more, though, we can see people as people and it, we, we can see them for who they are, that they are humans <laughs> and that, you know, as, as a Christian, you know, I believe everyone's made in the image of God. And if I can see everyone on that same level of they are created in the image of God, all of a sudden now I can begin to hear them. I can listen to them. I can gain empathy, may not be able to completely relate, but I can at least learn. And in doing so, then I can start to see, okay, well, what have I done that has caused damage unknowingly? Well, you know, how have I been a part of this? And so I, I think it is very important. You know, Lee was talking about how, you know, his family and grandparents and the same thing. I liked, I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I, you know, my wife and I started, we started our own business together. And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, and Bethany, my wife reminds me of this all the time. She's like, yeah, but you wouldn't have been able to had you not already had the opportunities that you that you had. You know, if it wouldn't have been for my grandparents, if it wouldn't have been for my parents, if it wouldn't have been for the, where we lived, even, the, you know, the location where we lived, the schools I went to. These things that I had no, that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> sure, I may I, I we could say I took advantage of some of those things. Sure. But had I not had those, had had everyone else not done those things prior to me, and had they not had those opportunities, I would have not been able to be where I'm at right now. So it's very easy to think we're all about just, you know, we're good old Americans. We just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Nobody does that. All of us, we're all standing uh, on those who went before us. And especially, as you pointed out, the white male. Uh, it's a patriarchal society. It's It's been dominated by by white men. And so, yes, of course, for me to say everything is fine now, 
you know, that no one's benefiting from that anymore is a complete joke. And we have to get honest. We have to be honest with, uh, with, with our past, with our history, because it is what has brought us to the present. Yeah. And I think the core of that, um, is that belonging to a religious community is really the most powerful thing that, that most people have access to, um, because it opens doors that wouldn't otherwise be open and it, it creates a sense of belonging and connection. And, um, I, I know you mentioned, you know, this idea of being rugged individualist. We're not actually as individualist as, um, so we want to think we are (laughs) like we are, we are literally wired for connection, our brains, our bodies, we are wired for connection. So what we have is we have a system that promotes the idea of being an individual as long as you're an individual within a particular set of doctrines as long as you fit within the box then you can be individualistic in that box Mm -hmm. but as soon as you step out of that box then all of the connection all of the benefits all of the acceptance the praise the love the community that you had in that box gets stripped away from you and you're also told that it's God's will. Mm. So belonging is weaponized in the church. And that's why when you, when you take a little baby step back and you start questioning and you start moving outside of that box, the system comes at you. Individuals are acting on behalf of the system. So when, when, you know, rock stars are screaming from the stage, when apologists, (laughs) when apologists start throwing Bible verses at you and, um, People try to co-opt the word deconstruction to really just mean a little bit of a a spiritual growth, but not actually deconstructing harmful belief systems. They're acting on behalf of a system. And every one of us is part of that system. And we have to be really honest about the role that we play um, as individuals and also in the system. So basically, if you're, I mean, it's the matrix. You're either plugged in or you're not. You're either feeding the system or you're stepping back and saying, oh, this is exploiting a lot of people. There's really no neutrality. Um, Denial of the harm isn't neutrality. It's actually supporting the unhealthy system. Yep, and that's absolutely, amen. (laughs) (laughs) I I was gonna add something, but I can't put it any better than you. Lee is speechless, Angela. You have been speechless. Yes. But I tell you, this is, this has been such a wonderful conversation. This has been such an eye-opening conversation for me. And I know it will be for our listeners. Angela, as we get ready to wrap this up, what words would you have for those that are in the process of deconstruction? What encouragement would you give them, not just as a deconstruction coach, but also as a pastor, also as someone who loves them and cares for their soul and wants the best good for them. What would you say to those that are in maybe different stages, whatever, what's something that, that you feel would be beneficial and encouraging for them? Yeah. So for people who are just getting started and are starting to get some of that blowback um, and starting to really feel like the one foot in one foot out, should I, you know, is this where I should be? Should I go? Like for people who are in that space, I would say, it's not always going to be this hard. Learn to trust yourself. Um, but those initial stages, a lot of times are the hardest. So that's what I would say for them. For people who are up to their eyeballs in it and they're feeling that isolation and they're feeling like there's no support, 
get some support because it is out there. Um, the internet has brought us a lot of really awful things, but it's also brought us a really beautiful way to connect. So, you know, I, I have a free group. There are dozens of other people who have free communities. Um, there are book studies, there are conferences, like there's a lot of other spaces where you can connect with other people's stories in a way that just helps you realize you're not the only one asking these questions. And sometimes that's all people need. They, they just need to know that they are not the lone person wandering through the desert trying to find something that doesn't exist. Um, so that, you know, get connected. And the other, the for anybody at any stage, I would really say um, therapy, 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 therapy. Because you, if your if your trauma response is always heightened, if you are always on like a you know a level ten alert, it makes it really hard on your body, and on your emotions, and on your brain to process something as complex as deconstruction. So by finding a little bit of healing from that trauma, by getting some support, by getting some neutral professionals who can talk to you in a way that doesn't create more trauma, yeah. you're going to be carving space out for yourself <clears throat> so that you can start to calm your nervous system, reconnect with your body, start to learn to trust your intuition, feel all the feelings that have been off limits, and you're, you'll start to feel whole again. But doing that work on your own, I won't say it's impossible because I don't like absolutes, but I'm going to say it's nearly impossible. Um, it's it's way, really hard. It's way harder because... I mean, I go to therapy. I have coaches because I can I can coach you guys through stuff all day long. But when it comes to seeing my own stuff, it's really hard. It's really hard. So it's good to have somebody there who can see it and to offer you support. Um, and just keep going. Even if you don't actually know where you're going, you don't know where you're going to end up, that, that actually means you're doing it right. Just Just keep going. Yeah, and are, do you do you serve as a, a coach for anybody or do, is this does someone have to be local to your area or is this something that you do online as well if someone oh yeah is I'm virtual I okay. do I do 99% of my work virtually so um thank goodness for zoom and, and video conferencing and and you know telephone projects and stuff um and there and if you know people are listening they're like I really want some support but I don't think she's the one there's a whole bunch of us out here I mean not as many. There's not as many faith deconstruction coaches as there are uh, really bad mega preachers that are putting the bad stuff out there. Um, <laughs> I just Another amen. A bit. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's okay because it just takes one. You just have to find your one person who can support you. Um, you just have to find your one community that says, no, you're, you're, oh, I totally went through that. I totally understand. Um, so I, I'll, I'll send you guys some links. There's a couple articles that have some other coaches in there too, but most of the deconstruction coaches I know are working virtually. Um, therapists who are familiar with religious trauma, that's a little trickier because they kind of have to be in your state to be licensed by your state for therapy. So gotcha. um, there's even a directory I can send you. It's not mine. I don't make anything off of it, uh, but it's a directory of uh, therapists who are familiar with religious trauma. So oh, I can be send great. That. Yeah, that would be um, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, because those are the those are the things. Like, you you didn't come. You probably didn't come to faith on your own. So if you're questioning faith, don't try to do that part on your own. Um, find some people who can support you who really don't care about the outcome of your faith. They just want to see you supported and healed. Yeah, that's the key. 
Fantastic. Well, Angela, thank you so much. One last question that I will ask, where can people find you on the internet? We'll have all of your information in our show notes. I know you'll be sending that to me so I can make sure that we have that there, but just go ahead and give, this is your opportunity to give yourself a shout out, anything you're working on, anything that you want to share with our audience, shamelessly plug yourself. Shamelessly. Okay. Yes. Um, Because I'm deconstructing, I can do it without shame, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Easiest place to find me is AngelaJHarrington.com and it's Harrington, H-E-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. You can also look up the uh, Faith Deconstruction Cafe on Facebook. Um, If you go to AngelaJHarrington.com and you click on the About page, you can actually find all my social channels. Um, We've got the Deconstructing Faith Summit coming up in September. Um, And then I'll, I don't know when this is going to air, but I'll give you guys a little sneak peek. We have some exciting announcements. There's going to be some cool stuff coming out um, in the fall and some projects, let's just say. Some projects are going to be announced here in the next couple months that I think are going to be just really empowering. And I'm really excited about putting out in the world. Fantastic. That's a teaser. teaser. That's what we call a a gold level teaser right there. Well, Angela, thank you so much once again for your time. I know you're I know you're busy. I'm a, I know Kevin and I are both busy. I know you're busy. We all are. So for you to take an hour out of your life to sit down with us and to talk with us about this topic and so many others. I mean, this has just been a wonderful conversation, a rich conversation. And I am deeply appreciative and thankful that there are people like you in the world doing the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for having me. Well, and to our audience, we never want to part ways with you guys without extending our thanks to you as well. We love each and every one of you. We are so thankful for the continued patronage, for listening to, you know, us two chuckleheads and our way more qualified than we are guests that we have on here repeatedly over and over again. We thank you for listening so patiently. We love you so much. And Kevin and I, we just continue to be humbled and awed by the response that our podcast has gotten. And it's because of you guys. So please continue to share this podcast with your friends, share it with your enemies. They need Jesus too. Um, share it with your loved ones, share it with anybody who could benefit from it. If you have any questions, drop us a line. Our email address is in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Give us that five-star review on iTunes and check out Kevin's book too, guys. It's on Amazon and it's fantastic. So Once again, thank you all very much, and we bid you all a good day.